This is hell. Welcome, K-pop stands and alt TikTok followers. At least I hope you're listening. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I was great up until you just said K-pop stands. <laughs> a phrase I did not expect to hear on This is Hell. <laughs> I wanted to say to the beginning, I couldn't figure out how to work it into a phrase until about a half a second before I said it. Do you know where Stan comes from? Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody did until this weekend. I just like that it stands. I thought for sure it was just a whole bunch of Polish people who were into K-pop. I was certain. I was certain. But that's Stash, not Stan. So my mistake. Uh, my weekend was amazing, by the way. It was incredibly relaxing. For the first time in I don't know how long, I just decided to do nothing for about 36 hours. And I sat on my back deck with my girly staring at the park, listening to the birds, listening to people walking around, watching them have fun and walk their dogs and blah, blah, blah. I had an incredibly relaxing weekend. Even though I was very paranoid of the crowd out in the park, I had a very, very relaxing weekend for the first time in a really long time. Today, we are told so often that we all know being a police officer is a very dangerous job, so there's no wonder they're so often involved in violent life-or-death situations because they're out seeking crime. They're actually looking for trouble to keep us all safe and secure, right? They're the last line of defense between us and the violent chaos that lurks all around us at all times. So it's no wonder the likelihood that police are victims of homicide is 50% higher than the average Americans. But it's weird that the rate of police who are victims of homicide is pretty much the same as it is for the average male in the United States who are going about their daily lives, minding their own business, not cops who are supposedly spending their days and nights dealing with dangerous elements, and the homicide rate among black American males leading their daily lives is around two and a half times the rate of police on duty. Just being alive as a black man in the U.S. is two and a half times more dangerous, more deadly than it is to be a freaking cop. So exactly how dangerous is it to be a cop? Are they focusing on the areas with the most crime? Is their level of aggression proportionate with any community's crime rate? We'll look deep into what police violence really is, how dangerous cops really are, and the impact of institutionalized violence within policing, and a few when we talk to sociologist Musa El-Garbi, who wrote the article for The Baffler, Brutal Force. The full picture of police violence in America shows the cops are out of control. Musa is a Paul F. Lazarfeld, Lazarsfeld fellow in sociology at Columbia University. You can find out more about Musa at his website, musalgarby.com. You can follow Musa on Twitter at Musa underscore A-L-G-H-A-R-B-I. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is skip the champagne. Last week, we cited an article, How to Cure a Bad Hangover, a helpful guide at gopurpletree.com, but that web address was wrong for all the people who wrote in about this. <laughs> the website is got. Not go purple tree. That's G O T P U R P L E T R E E dot com, and it is a site that sells their own hangover cure supplements. So that said, in their article, 
At no point do they promote their own supplement, however, which we just, I think, have multiply done. <laughs> however, they do state science says the bubbles in sparkling wine may accelerate the absorption of alcohol so you get drunk faster. And the problem is this produces especially bad hangovers. So that makes this week's hangover cure not some stupid supplement with a dumb name, but the stupid supplement with a dumb name's website, which tells us skip the champagne or any bubbly alcoholic drink. I have found that to be a real hangover cause. I don't drink champagne very often, and it's usually just on New Year's, and it's usually not champagne. And on New Year's Day, I generally do hang up, uh, wake up with one of the only hangovers I have of the year. So, I've been drunk since 2003. Well, good for you, my friend. Well, unless you passed out and you didn't know about it. This is not the media. This is hell on our previous live streaming. This is hell here at thisishell.com. Last Thursday, we wrapped up by explaining that we had every intent to start this week by talking about how the mainstream establishment corporate media is acting as if they're only now becoming suddenly aware of the systemic and institutional aspects of racism in the USA, USA. That's what I said I'd be talking about today, and I will, I promise. But who knew that before the weekend was out, President Trump would be announcing at a rally his campaign's targeted Untermensch, the inferior people as they were known by the Nazis. I mean, I knew it would eventually happen if his poll numbers slipped enough, and if his numbers dropped any lower, drop any lower. Who knows what he will see to, and what he will do to invigorate his racist, hate-filled base. But I'm going to go with Mm, armed civil insurrection. However, before we get to how the weekend ended, let's get to how it started. Since the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers, corporate news outlets have been scrambling to act surprised at the degree of institutional and systemic racism in the United States. Incredulous that this could be happening in the U.S. now, today, in the 21st century, somehow believing it was a Racism was some relic of the past left in that past. Apparently, the only ones who actually fell for the idea that once Barack Obama was elected president, we were somehow living in a post-racial America. The only people who fell for that was the media. Despite far-right wing marches with participants carrying torches and wearing swastikas and yelling Seagull and doing Nazi salutes, somehow the media continue to act surprised at the fact that there may be racism here still in the United States, in post-racial America, in Obama's America. But to not know this level of racism still existed, you had to actively and intentionally be working very hard to ignore it. That kind of denialism of how bad racism is and has always been in the U.S. is very difficult to passively maintain. To be in that kind of denial, it takes a lot of hard work and willful ignorance. As one commenter argued on social media, denialism is a kind of encouragement, allowing racism to persist in its many forms by simply pretending to be unaware. Some argue that it shows the white people in the white media do not have any or many non-white friends, so they were simply unaware of the level of institutional racism in the U.S. and its impact on everyone, no matter your skin color. But to not know racism as a guiding feature of this country and capitalism and the imperialism around the world isn't a matter of not having any black friends. It's a matter of not having the eyes and ears to see and hear the suffering and not having the heart to accept that the stories of oppression which had been repeated for centuries weren't all part of some massive African-American conspiracy to make white cops look bad and label all white people as racist. 
the worst at it seems to be local TV. As a friend of mine, Tom, pointed out in a 2011 story on the local CBS affiliate here in Chicago, for example, they took a four-year-old African-American boy's words out of context. The child who had just been near a nearby drive-by shooting that had just occurred told a freelance reporter he wanted to be a police officer when he grew up. However, the reporter, editor, and producer changed the footage to make it appear the boy simply wanted a gun when he grew up. Not he wanted to be a police officer to have a gun, which is what he had said in his original statement. They had made a four-year-old out to be a potential criminal, potential murderer, and not a hopeful law enforcement officer. Who knows, maybe the media is finally waking up to the fact that the United States depends upon police to control a population who have imposed upon them a low wage so others may greatly benefit from their subjugation. Or not. I'm going mostly with not. But in what may be one of the most revealing statements of his presidency this weekend, President Trump said that he had made Juneteenth famous, the holiday commemorating the freeing of the last blacks to be enslaved in the U.S., Remember, slavery still persisted west of the Mississippi and was often imposed on African, or, sorry, Native Americans. And you can hear our interview from 2016 with historian Andres Resende on his award-winning book, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement, at our website, thisishell.com. But Trump said he made Juneteenth, again, the word famous, but is famous really a word that you use to describe a holiday? And would it be accurate to say that the most famous holiday is New Year's or Ramadan or Passover or Christmas? Are holidays mere celebrities trying to increase their brand's Q rating? Because if they are, I gotta say, holidays, you're pretty shallow, and with being a Kardashian as your mission, I'm kind of disgusted at how commercial you've all become, totally selling out and appearing as nothing more than a poor substitute, a cheap imitation of what you once were. Yet the word Trump used was famous, which seems oddly out of place when describing a holiday. But the word doesn't seem out of place when you consider Trump's worldview. As Eugene McCarraher explained on last Tuesday's show, the real faith, the real religion of Trump, is our state religion, mammonism the belief in money above any and all else. When Trump said he made Juneteenth famous, he was giving it his greatest compliment. He was showing what he values most in anything. It's a level of fame and celebrity. Trump believes that if the market has made someone financially successful or determined they deserved fame or celebrity, then those people must be the best people because the market knows best. People seem to like that guy on CNBC, Larry Kudlow. Let's make him director of the U.S. National Economic Council. I like that show, Huckabee. Does he have a daughter who might want to be a press secretary? He's got a producer like I like, too. She's blonde and defends birther conspiracies for me on CNN. Kaylee McEnany, what's Omarosa up to anyway? You know who else I like on Fox News? That analyst who keeps wanting to nuke Iran, John Bolton. He'd make a great no-nonsense national security advisor. The market rewards those who attain celebrity, and the president believes the market knows all. So if you are famous, your greatness is beyond question, no matter how you gained your fame. Problem is, a lot of famous people are turning out to be racist and not necessarily good at anything, but getting and being famous, being wealthy, and lauding it over us as they look down on us from their chartered planes while drinking champagne that will give them hangovers, thank God. Likely all earned by previous, all this money and all this wealth earned by previous generations who left them riches they did not 
do anything to earn. Wealth they can only multiply, which is a lot easier than actually working for your own money. Which takes us to Trump's campaign rally on Saturday night, which went full Hitler, in case you purposely missed the rally, and I hope you did. The president and his administration has determined all immigrants and all protesters against police violence are no longer human. We are animals, we are the Untermensch, the subhumans who no longer deserve our humanity, no, no matter what race we are. As animals being less than humans, suddenly we are vulnerable to death more than ever, to being killed. After all, you murder humans, you kill, you slaughter animals without a second thought. With a media deep in denialism about the institutional oppression forced upon all of us within our democratic capitalist system that really lacks the democratic part. With leadership that only sees value in market-determined fame, who it was inching closer and closer to a campaign purging all those who are not famous every day, every day. It seems to be coming clearer and clearer that this is hell. Coming up, while policing is not as dangerous as you may think, the police are a lot more dangerous than you are really likely aware. We'll also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. It is nearly as dangerous to be a police officer as it is to be any male in the United States, no matter race, no matter class who is going about their daily business, leading their daily lives, unlike police who are actually seeking out trouble. Think about that for a minute. I am as likely to be a victim of homicide as any cop while I am walking down the street, and unlike the police, my fellow citizens are not providing me with any body armor. Here to help us understand exactly how dangerous it is to be a cop and how dangerous cops are to us as law-abiding and unarmed citizens, Sociologist Musa El-Garbi wrote the article for the baffler Brutal Force, the full picture of police violence in America shows the cops are out of control. Welcome to This Is Hell, Musa. Thank you for having me. You write that following the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent wave of protests nationwide, indeed worldwide, against police brutality, Americans have witnessed video after video of cops assaulting unarmed demonstrators and even bystanders unlucky enough to cross their path. Now, that's just a very introductory general statement to make, but I want to ask a bigger question here that I don't think people are asking enough. We've had guests on who say that economics play a role in the protests as funds from the CARES Act, for example, to address the pandemic did not go to help people of color, but the very wealthy and big corporations. We've had guests say this is about an uprising against a police force that enforces class more than it fights crime. We've had guests say this is an uprising against capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy, which explains the globalization of the movement as it is not specifically, those issues are not specifically about the U.S., that those are plagues around the world. It's also, as you point out, about police brutality and violence. Are the protests both about the police and at the same time about far more the, than the police? And if so, what are the police, what are the protests about that includes policing that may go on just the workings of police departments? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's hard to know, you know, um, f- fully what, what drives a large, large group activities like this. I mean, clearly uh, front and center in a lot of the discussions are questions about uh, race, racial injustice, um, police brutality, uh, 
a lot of people feel like the system is not fair, um, is uh, serving you know, some people to the exclusion of others. And policing is tied into, in a number of ways, is tied into a lot of these problems. I've written about this before in um, Salon, uh, for instance, about uh, the relationship between the way policing is done in America and sort of broader questions about systemic inequality, because there's a bunch of downstream effects that come from uh, the way that policing and the criminal justice system more broadly happens in America. So, uh, so for instance, if a cop uh, arrests, and, uh, arrests you over some arbitrary thing because they're policing your communities more heavily than other communities, and you end up with a rap sheet or a, um, or a bunch of fines that you can't pay, and so then you have a, a, a sort of a warrant out for you. So if you do, any, any contact you have with the police could um, you know, land you in jail. Uh, then this restricts the kind of employment opportunities you have, or just the number of people who are incarcerated affects black families down the line, right? So a lot of these sort of um, socioeconomic things that you see happening with people from historically marginalized and disadvantaged groups are actually intimately bound up with how we do policing in America. So the if the protests are about more than policing, um, that doesn't the reason why they're about things more than policing is because a lot of these issues are actually much more intertwined than, than, than people uh, consider at times. That, that they're not ju- just about chokeholds, that ending chokeholds isn't going to end all of the problems with police. What does the police responding to protests against police violence violently, what does that tell you about the police? Are they reformable, fixable, redeemable, or is it going to take more than reform to address the deadly violence and inequality within policing? I mean, there are some studies that show that police are actually more likely to respond with violence against protests that are about police brutality than they are other protests. So for instance, if you're protesting uh, Trump or you're trying to uh, save the whales or um, any other kind of demonstration, police are a lot less likely to uh, respond to that forcefully, uh, even you know when people are, are you know uh, very passionate and aggressive or whatever. But when people are protesting uh, police abuse or misconduct, police are much more likely to respond to those with force, uh, studies have shown. Uh, but one of the most striking things about these, ki- the, the, I mean, there are <laughs> videos from all across the country of these horrendous cases of police misconduct. In one case, uh, a protester is standing there with his hands up and he's wearing a mask and the cops pull down his mask and hit him with pepper spray just because they can. Or, um, you know, uh, this woman who uh, female protester gets groped by a cop. Uh, she's already secured, restrained, and then the cop moves up and, and gropes her, her breasts, and she breaks away and starts screaming at him for uh, doing this. And then the other cops come up with batons and just start beating her relentlessly and pepper spraying her until she, and the whole time she's screaming about uh, this cop groping her. Uh, and there are all sorts of horrible incidents like this. Uh, they're caught on video. And the cops know they're on video. They know a lot of them are wearing body cams. They know that the protesters are recording them. They know there's journalists in the area. In fact, a lot of them are roughing up journalists. Um, in this one case, the cop walks by this this journalist who's holding uh, his camera, um, and he has a riot shield, and he just uses takes the shield and hits the journalist with the camera for no reason. The, obviously, the journalist wasn't doing anything. He was just staying there recording. He hits him because he can, knowing that this is a journalist who's recording the incident. And um, 
And so the fact that they uh, feel this, that they're willing to commit these kinds of obviously egregious behaviors, knowing full well that they're being recorded, suggests that they understand, and not incorrectly, that they're above the law. In, in a deep sense, they can do whatever they want, and they're unlikely to be held to account. This is the sense that some cops seem to have, as um, demonstrated in their behaviors when they know they're being recorded. And it's not and this is the most horrifying thing, actually, is it's not an inaccurate perception they have. In many cases, it's incredibly difficult to hold cops accountable in any way, professionally, criminally, civilly, in any way, for misconduct, even when glaring incidents of misconduct occur. So to you, then, what explains why the American public has tolerated this from the police department for so long. We've to- we've been told that, oh, the body cameras, the body cameras are going to change everything. All of a sudden, people are going to be fully aware of police violence and police violence should subside. So what explains to you why we tolerated this for so long? And do you think that body cameras are going to save us from more police violence? Uh, so the body cameras are overhyped. And um, and again, so, so part of it is the b- body cameras are only an effective deterrent if people know that if they're caught on video doing wrong, doing something wrong, they'll be punished for it. But if they feel like they can do wrong on a body camera or being recorded in some other way, and nothing's going to happen to them anyway, then it doesn't really, um, then they fail to serve the function that they're supposed to. In fact, uh, it could even embolden people more. Uh, if they know that they can, again, um, commit crimes with impunity on camera and not be punished, uh, that that could exacerbate their sense of um, being above the law. And in many cases, um, and, and so that's one problem. Another problem is that when cops do wrong, oftentimes they just turn off their body cameras or they say they fell off or things like this. And this happens a lot, um, uh, and including when cops commit um, sexual assault and other crimes. A lot of times they'll say uh, they'll they'll just turn off their body camera and then commit a crime, or they'll say it fell off or malfunctioned or something like this. Um, so, to the extent that cops can just uh, deactivate them or take them off or turn them off when, whenever they want to do something wrong, and they're not really punished for that either, then um, then they're not going to be effective. But but again, uh, there are there are all sorts of incidents caught on camera with police. In one, in one horrific um, incident that's on my uh, Twitter feed, for instance, a body camera footage shows four police in body armor, full body armor with automatic weapons, rolling up on a homeless person who was, they got a call that someone was falling asleep at a bus stop. Four cops with automatic weapons come up to this homeless person and start screaming at him to get up. And he's startled and he, uh, you know, imagine waking up and seeing four people with body armor and guns pointing at you. And anyway... Uh, he's, uh, he, they're fully, they're far away from him. He is unarmed. He doesn't do anything remotely threatening at any point in the encounter. Uh, he just, uh, says something rude back to them and they just kill him. They kill him. They murder him. They unleash their automatic weapons and kill him for committing. He had committed, you know, no, no crime, no major crime, uh, loitering maybe, uh, <laughs> he was not a threat. He was far away from them. He was unarmed. He was not doing anything, uh, you know, any kind of erratic action or anything like that. He was, and they, they just murdered him because they could. Um, and this is on body camera. This is the cop's own body camera when you're watching them snuff the life out of this person. And none of them are held to account. None of, no, one, no, no one went to jail for that uh, or anything. Um, so 
if you can do those kinds of actions on body camera, uh, it's not clear that, uh, and you feel entitled to behave in that way, <laughs> you know, while you're wearing a body camera. It's not clear that the body camera will, um, that body cameras will meaningfully deter this problem. And so, the, I mean, a lot of times there are these sort of deep sociological problems that people want to do these easy technological fixes for. But unfortunately, the world, you know, um, the world doesn't work that you can just throw a device at something and then a problem goes away. Uh, so I, I think people are over overestimating uh, the body cameras uh, effectiveness question. And ignoring the other problem with body cameras, which is they, they can be uh, used for surveillance. They can the footage can be used to determine who are protesters, who are activists. So in any counterintelligence that the police want to be involved in in the future, they know who to target. The first part of that question, I'm sorry for asking a couple of parts of that question. But the first part was why tolerate this police oppression? Uh, to what extent are we complicit? To what extent do we allow? this kind of violence, the killings, the murders by police of, for example, a homeless gentleman who's very far away from you, whose only crime is being poor. Yeah, I, I, so, so, so the, the, the history of uh, policing and poverty and race in America is, you know, uh, it's a very uh, a long story. Uh, but as far as, but, and, but but what but one sort of turning point in the story that's important to mention, uh, I think, uh, and that's under discussed in some ways about why we put up with um, with some of these actions is uh, so in the aftermath of 9/11, for instance, we saw um, a valorization of first responders, and you know, rightly so, they they rushed into the ground zero. Um, and tried to save as many lives as they could. A lot of them continue to die of cancer from being exposed to chemicals, you know, related to uh, to responding to 9/11. And uh, but in the aftermath of of 9/11 and the sort of um, security mindset that Americans were in, and the lead up to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and things like this, um, the military, the police, uh, other first responders were put on this. Or were put on a pedestal even more than they had, you know, previously been in America, uh, to the point where criticizing police was and remains, to some extent, um, extremely taboo. And recognizing wrongdoing by police is something that a lot of Americans find very difficult to do because there's there's sense of because police officers are in many ways now um, tied to their own sense of. Um, to, to a lot of people's sense of patriotism and, and all of this sort of stuff. To, to criticize police to many people's minds feels un-American and unpatriotic um, as a result of sort of shifts in our mindset that have happened since 9-11. And post 9-11, there's also been, a, you know, this sort of militarization of the police as well, where a lot of um, police departments have hired combat veterans uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan into their forces. There's active recruitment drives for this. They're equipping them with military uh, surplus equipment. So they're wearing tactical military gear and driving around military vehicles and brandishing military weapons. Um, and so there's uh, an increasing sort of uh, uh, militarization of the police as well, which uh, sort of uh, further underlines this association that in a lot of people's minds um, of like associating the cops with something like soldiers who are, you know, defending our country. And, you know, um, 
so I, so this is part of part of the issue. I think part of it too is that people one um, overestimate how dangerous policing is. Uh, two, they overestimate how effective police are. And then uh, three, um, they're not aware of the of the of the scale of wrongdoing done by police officers because it's not covered in the kind of the breadth of it, the scale of it is not usually covered. And this is one of the things I tried to do with this article is present, you know, how how pervasive and widespread a lot of these problems are. I think people are genuinely unaware of that and surprised by that. Um, so those are, I think, uh, some of the core problems. And uh, and I think the over overestimating the effectiveness of the police is one thing too. So so one of the things you hear a lot in response to people who make calls, say, defund the police or restructure the police or, you know, these kinds of calls is, well, if you if you defund the police, who's going to deal with all the rapes? And the, um, but the, the reality of the matter is, in America, um, most, most uh, property crime uh, doesn't result in anyone being charged with any, anything. You call the cops if your property is stolen or vandalized, it's unlikely, more likely than not, that no one's going to get charged for that. If you're assaulted, if you're raped, if you call the police, uh, it, it's it, they're unlikely. It's unlikely to result in anyone being charged. Most rapes in America do not result. The over the vast majority of them do not result in anyone result in anyone being arrested or charged with any crime. Most rape kits that the police conduct in the aftermath of uh, of a sexual assault are literally never even processed. Even a third of murders in America go um, don't result in anyone being charged. Uh, so. So people think that the the cops are this uh, thin blue line, as they say, between sort of society and anarchy, and that without the police, people will be committing crimes left and right without, you know, facing any accountability for it. But the reality of the matter is already in America, um, most property crime and violent crime uh, doesn't uh, doesn't result in people being charged when it's committed. Um, so I think this uh, over overestimating the effectiveness of the police is part of the problem that feeds into this mindset. And then again, uh, overestimating how dangerous policing is. Uh, so in a lot of people's minds, police are these uh, sort of are, are getting harmed and killed sort of left and right in the line of duty. And you see this all the time, you know, in popular depictions of the police on television and movies and things like this. Um, and, and I think that's a big part of the problem as well. Right. The police, <clears throat> the police need to be respected because they are helping you out. They are protecting you from crime. So you should respect those people who are supposedly laying their life on the line for you. You write the most reported violent, uh, you write the most reported violent and property crimes, as you were just saying, in America go unsolved. More than a third of murders, almost half of all assaults, and the vast majority of reported rapes never result in a suspect being arrested, charged, and prosecuted. And when it comes to those murders, often uh, murders will be reclassified uh, as non-homicides because they can't determine if the person was murdered. So often, it can be as low as 10% of murders that are actually solved, at least according to somebody else, a police officer I was talking to here in Chicago. You continue that indeed many rape kits police carry out in the aftermath of a sex crime are never seen or never even processed. An estimated backlog of 200,000 kits have gone untested across the country. So, Musa, cops are not good at solving crimes. They're not good at keeping things peaceful. We've seen how they are not very good at making certain the public is safe while exercising its constitutional rights. 
they're not good at upholding the law and that they seem to be breaking the law, as you point out in your article, quite a lot. So, Musa, what are the police good at? Well, I, I should say, I, I, don't, I don't even know if it's that they're not good at solving crimes. I think that they could be more effective at solving crimes. One of the problems that we have, uh, though, in the country is that um, is, <laughs> there's a sort of, there's misplaced priorities in a lot of districts. So, for instance, um, as I note in the piece, crime has fallen about 50% in America since the 1990s. And, uh, but we still have the same ratio of police to citizens as we did at that time at the, at when crime was a lot higher. So cops have a lot more bandwidth now than they ever have. And yet, again, most, most crimes um, go unsolved. Why? Well, part of the reason why is because what police officers, uh, what pol- many police departments in the country do uh, prioritize rather than solving crimes uh, or... <laughs> or at least as much, and sometimes to the detriment of solving crimes, or often to the detriment of solving crimes, is trying to raise money from the civilian population. Uh, So officers are tasked uh, with writing uh, a certain number of sites, trying to charge people for tickets, or shake people down for money, or seize people's assets. I mean, this is one of the things that police spend an inordinate amount of time doing. Uh, in order to continue, uh, you know, in order to fill city budgets, in order to pay for their own budgets. And, and you see this all the time. If you live in a place where people drive a lot, you know, uh, down the road, like in Arizona, where I'm from, uh, at the end of the month, all of a sudden, there are just a ton of cop cars everywhere all the time pulling people over left and right. Is it because all of a sudden people are speeding a lot more at the end of the month every month? No, it's because, the, you know, some officers are short on their quota and they're trying to hit their quota. And so they're just pulling people over um, uh, left and right because they can, because and, and not only because they can, but because they feel like they have to. Because if they aren't charging people and raising money for the departments, then they'll... Um, risk losing raises, losing promotions. One striking case, for instance, uh, to give a concrete example of how this plays out. In, um, uh, yeah, so in um, Auburn, Alabama, there was this police officer, uh, Justin Hanners, who, uh, so in this town of, um, of Auburn, officers were supposed to have 100 contacts per month between uh, uh, tickets and other citations to raise money. And so when you looked at how many officers that was at 100 contacts per month, then that amounted to 72,000 contacts per year in this small town, a town of 50,000 people, officers were supposed to do 72,000 contacts per year. And so this officer, uh, Justin Hanners, um, said that this was wrong, that the role of cops should not be to, should be to interfere with people's daily lives as little as possible, unless they were doing something dangerous, that the cops should be there to help people when they needed. They shouldn't be out there fleecing people for money. Um, and he refused to comply with this. And he was fired. He was fired for this. He was fired for not, for speaking out against um, raising, uh, against cops spending all their time trying to raise money uh, instead of pursuing major crimes and for refusing to comply with uh, with this um, citation quota, he was fired for that. Um, and so, and this is like, and this is part of the problem too. Is it's not it's not just that when cops do um, the wrong thing that they're not punished, and that a lot of police departments have perverse incentives that they give to police officers. But when cops try to do the right thing, 
So now when cops do the wrong thing, they're not punished. But a lot of times when cops try to do the right thing, they are punished. Um, and there was, I mean, there are all, all sorts of instances like this of the good cop who stands up to these problems and they end up getting fired for it. And in one striking case, for instance, um, 19 year old, uh, 19 year veteran of the police force, Carol Horn, uh, her white partner would put this black man in a chokehold in Buffalo, New York. This was in 2006, put this black man unarmed in a chokehold. Um, and he was already subdued and it, and she thought her part, she told her partner, like, this is unnecessary. You're going to kill this person. Partner just kept choking him. So she jumped on the, on her partner's back and pried the person off. So she prevented the person from being another George Floyd. And uh, they arrested the suspect. It's not like he escaped or anything. Um, and, uh, it, but she was fired for this. She was fired for interfering, interfering with her partner, snuffing out the life of an unarmed black man. Um, and in another case, uh, in Chicago, Illinois, um, uh, Ike Lambert, uh, he um, refused to sign off on a fraudulent police report. So the police shot an unarmed 17-year-old black kid, and they tried to file a fraudulent report about, about the case, and he refused to sign off on it. And for this, he was demoted to patrol duty. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can go on and on and on with these cases of um, when cops try to do the right thing, when they try to whistleblow, when they try to not conform to what, when they're told to do the wrong thing, a lot of times they get fired for it. Um, and so this is how you end up in a situation where uh, a lot of, as I, as I note in my piece, uh, according to Bureau of Justice um, Statistics studies, cops regularly witness their peers doing wrongdoing, and they usually don't speak out about it. And part of the reason they don't speak out about it is, one, they fear sort of informal sanctions uh, from their peers. So, you know, uh, them not backing you up when you're in a dangerous situation or being otherwise ostracized or harassed. And they also fear formal sanctions. A lot of times police are actually fired um, for doing the right thing, uh, even as it's nearly impossible to hold police to account for doing the wrong thing. And that's crazy. And it needs to change. And you mentioned civil forfeiture, and you write that not all abuses by police are physical in nature. Consider the billions of dollars in cash, cars, real estate, and other assets that the police seize from civilians every year on the grounds of civil forfeiture, and how that could be incredibly problematic. But uh, Moose, uh, civil forfeiture became supposedly became necessary because of continuing, continued, ongoing. Supposedly, budget cuts the police, or at least that's how it was being sold. Are police underfunded, say, by the increasing popularity of more and more and more tax breaks, forcing them to seek out revenue streams like civil forfeiture, which can have a real negative impact on policing? Did we underfund the police, making it necessary for them to, uh, you know, depend upon something like civil forfeiture, which can make policing actually more violent and targeted? So, so the question about whether police is underfunded is interesting, right? So, so what, so what do we mean by underfunded? So, so for instance, again, um, the ratio of, uh, of, of police to citizens in America has stayed the same, despite the fact that crime has fallen more than 50%. So one, one sort of question to ask if police budgets are tight is, do we actually need this many police? Um, you know, uh, if, if if departments down, many departments could downsize without meaningfully affecting public safety. 
So this is the first thing. The second thing, a lot of police departments spend their budgets in insane ways. I mean, there are departments, um, lots of departments nationwide, where the standard police cruiser is are 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 these really you know fancy muscle cars, and some departments even have like Lamborghinis and stuff that cops drive around in. Um, all sorts. Of, there's all sorts of waste in in police budgets. Um, that could be uh, saved. So, so the idea that cops are, are that police departments are underfunded, and that the only way that we can close the loop, uh, that we can sort of, that they can remain solvent, is by unjustly seizing people's assets who haven't even committed a crime, or otherwise going into communities um, that are already among the poorest and most disadvantaged, and just um, t- trying to, you know, shake down those those communities, those communities who can afford at least for money all the time. The idea that that's the only kind of way that that police budgets can remain solvent uh, is um, unacceptable. People shouldn't accept those kinds of arguments. There are plenty of cuts that departments can make. Department force levels probably shouldn't be as high as they are in a lot of places. Um, And uh, and so, you know, whether we should... um, Yes. So I, I just sort of categorically reject uh, the idea that um, that the abuse of civil forfeiture is a necessary evil um, or in order for police to uh, continue doing their jobs. At the same time, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I guess the answer is uh, no, I just I, I disagree with that. What what impact do you think that ending civil forfeiture would have on policing? Would that have an effect on the way that they engage with the public? I think um, yeah. So so one um, ending civil forfeiture, and then two actually uh, eliminating quotas and some of the other sort of uh, financialization. Um, you know, some of the sort of uh, systems where police officers are expected to spend an inordinate amount of their time just shaking people down for money. Um, if you eliminated these kinds of things, it changes the relationship between the police and the public, actually, right? So if if you're if if you're getting encountered, if your only encounters with the police are when it's a dire situation and you need help or you know things like this, and they're there to help you. People will look much more favorably upon upon police uh, than if if you're you know routinely encountering police just to be shaken down for money, um, and so especially in the communities that are heavily policed, eliminating these kinds of things, um, especially if you're poor or even if you're not poor and you just and you have your your assets taken um, for nothing when you have committed no crime, <laughs> not only does that make you not like the police. I mean that erodes your 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 faith and your trust in America more broadly in the whole justice system and I mean uh, what does it say about the country you know the broader system not just the police when cops can just arbitrarily seize your property when you have committed no crime and you can't get it back um, or when you get shaken down uh, in some cases um, police will arrest someone, and then ultimately not charge them with any crime, but then you get saddled with all of these fees related to, uh, uh, you know, court appearances and things like this that you owe the city, 
and if you don't pay them, then they do lock you up or they issue a warrant for your arrest. Um, and so, and so you end up in a situation where, again, you were never charged with a crime, but you owe thousands of dollars. Uh, and if you don't pay that, you have to pay uh, upon penalty of imprisonment, right? And so these kinds of things change the nature of people's um, relationships with the police. And the fact, and, and, and many of these kinds of routine stops that cops do to try to fleece money out of people escalate into situations where people end up dying needlessly. In one case, uh, this uh, horrible case that was actually caught on, on, on film uh, for the show Live PD, police pull someone over for having a taillight out. And this somehow escalates into a situation where they literally tase this man to death. And he had committed no crime. Um, he was not resisting arrest. He didn't have any outstanding warrants or anything like this. Um, and they tased him to death. And, and so a lot of these situations sort of needlessly escalate because cops are, arbitrary, are having these arbitrary contacts um, with civilians that are hostile in nature when they're trying to shake them down for money needlessly. Um, and so eliminating those would reduce the number of people who are injured or killed by police. It would raise people's um, esteem of police. Uh, so it's something. It, it should be something that departments prioritize. Now, um, if there if there is a problem with revenues, then again, I, I mean, I think a lot of departments can can consider their current staffing levels and whether they're necessary, especially if they're going to be sending cops less to do these. You know, if they're reducing the police uh, activity and seizing assets from people and shaking them down for money, then you actually need even less cops. Um, uh, and so, you know, you, you can look at force levels, you can look at other cuts that people can make. And then if there's still revenue shortfalls, I think then that's the point where after you have calibrated your force levels and after you've eliminated extraneous spending, if there are still budget shortfalls, then that's the point where, um, police departments can sort of make a case for why they actually need more money. And I think you know, most taxpayers would be willing. I mean, most taxpayers already give police departments enormous budgets that are not not very well um, scrutinized. So taxpayers would be willing to pay uh, as needed f for the ability of police to sustain themselves without doing this kind of uh, uh, financial shakedown maneuvers. Um, so I, I I think it would be to the benefit of everyone if they were to uh, change change these activities. And you point out that not only are uh, police, not only are police homicides exceedingly rare in any given year relative to the overall number of officers nationwide, violence-related injuries are also fairly un uncommon. These data render the statistics on police use of force even more striking. So how exaggerated is the level to which the U.S. public is actually violent? How much is police force guided upon, dependent upon, Fear and how much are their supporters also fueled by that same exaggerated fear of the other, whether that's the poor, or immigrants, or people of color, or non-heterogender conformity? How exaggerated is the level to which the U.S. public is actually violent, and how dependent is the police on that exaggerated violence and fear? Well, absolutely. So, so police um, routinely, when they're fa again, when they're facing budget cuts or or calls to downsize, or even calls for reform about the way they do business, 
they're, they lean heavily into the sphere, saying explicitly, um, like, uh, basically, look, if you tie our hands, if you cut our budgets, if you anything, right, then you're going to be um, subject to a lot more robbery and murder and death and, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and not only do they uh, make this uh, threat, but sometimes they actually um, carry, carry it out. So uh, in a number of cases, when cops have been criticized by public officials or their budgets have been downsized, they've responded by basically refusing to work, either um, slow walking, uh, like uh, slow, slow walking um, calls or uh, calling out sick uh, more than, you know, you know, all at once and, and things like this. Uh, as was happening recently in Atlanta, for instance. Um, the shocking thing, though, is it, it, um, uh, the city eludes me right now. I'll, I'll look it up and I can email you the details. Uh, but in one case, the, the police did. They, they radically reduced the number of citations they did um, in response to being criticized by, by the local government and, be, and facing possible cuts. So they, they decided to radically reduce their their um, citations and stops, thinking that this would result in a you know a great increase in assaults and, and murders and stuff, and then people would be begging for them to. But in fact, there was no substantial increase in murders or assaults or anything like that. Um, there was just less stops, just less people being stopped for 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 random shakedown stuff. Um, and so and so the the question, of course, immediately became instead. Um, is like how necessary were these stops, you know, to begin with? How necessary is a lot of this stuff that police are doing um, with respect to public safety? Uh, but yes, officers routinely uh, trade in, in this fear. And also, again, they overhype um, the dangers that they themselves face on the job. Uh, when in fact, again, um, uh, the police officers are not much more likely to be a victim. Of, uh, police officers are overwhelmingly male. Uh, we'll flag at the top, and they're no more likely to, uh, not much more likely to be a victim of homicide. About three percent more likely uh, to be a victim of homicide in a given year than the typical American male just living their day-to-day -day life. And injuries from violence are also um, extremely uh, uncommon. Uh, most ninety-seven uh, percent of police officers in any given year. Uh, don't face any kind of um, injury from assault. And even the injuries that occur from assault, they mostly occur, uh, a plurality of them occur in the context of hand-to-hand -hand scuffles. And the injuries are typically minor um, abrasions, bruising, lacerations, you know, sprained muscles. Um, so when people think of cops getting injured, they think of them getting stabbed or shot or, you know, um, concussions, uh, things like this. Um, those are those kinds of uh, injuries are actually uh, exceedingly rare among police as well. So you were mentioning uh, the heavily policed communities. You mentioned that in your article as well, and aggressive policing and how this, these heavily policed communities and aggressive policing isn't policing isn't necessarily done in the areas with the most high crimes. So where are the areas? What are the areas? What are their, their characteristics or their traits where heavily where they where areas are heavily policed? and face aggressive policing, if not the areas with the most high crime. Yeah, so what's interesting is, so for instance, if you look at um, uh, where, 
where the the areas with the most sort of police shooting uh, deaths, um, they aren't necessarily again, you know, uh, major urban centers that have high rates of of homicide or, or other crime. A lot of times, actually, um, places with a sort of heavy kind of gun culture or sort of um, vigilante kind of law enforcement culture. So places like Arizona, uh, for instance, um, have a higher rate of um, police shootings uh, than other places that have high, much higher uh, rates of crime, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, so, so part of it is a cultural thing. Um, so in, in areas where, where there's a whole um, culture around where police are, are venerated and there's a culture around the use of force and around gun culture and stuff like that, um, then cops feel more impunity um, to use force. So that's one factor. Um, but, uh, but there are a number of, but yeah, but, but when you look statistically, uh, speaking, yeah, there, there's, there's not actually a, a, a meaningful statistical relationship between an area's, um, level of crime and the, uh, level of force, uh, of deadly force deployed in that area. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the variance that you see as far as, uh, police use of force has more to do with, again, the culture of the department or the culture of the area uh, rather than um, the crime. So it doesn't, it's not a response to crime. It's a, it's a response to something else, basically, um, that, that seems to be driving uh, the variance in use of force. One last question for you, Musa. We've been so speaking with sociologist Musa L. Garbi, wrote, who wrote the article for The Baffler, Brutal Force, the full picture of police violence in America shows the cops are out of control. You can find out more, more about Musa at his website, musalgarbi.com. That's Musa, A-L-G-H-A-R-B-I.com. And you should definitely follow Musa on Twitter. He does, on his Twitter feed, keep you updated as to different acts of violence that have been committed by the police around the United States. So it really is a great Twitter feed to follow. All you have to do is go to at Musa underscore Al Garby. At Musa underscore Al Garby. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Musa, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Let's assume somebody is in the audience right now who is very supportive of the police and thinks that all of the problems that the police are facing right now are because the police are not acting with enough force, that they're not being tough enough. So, Musa, how effective is aggressive policing at fighting crime? So, yeah. So um, we've seen, for instance, uh, in studies uh, about the effectiveness of like uh, brutal uh, I mean, sorry, broken windows policing and stop and frisk that happened in New York, that there, there's actually no um, correlation, no meaningful correlation between the sort of uh, rates of crime and uh, the, the broken windows uh, sort of stuff. Uh, crime fell, uh, continued to fall, uh, you know, both um, before and after uh, the imposition of this at the same rate. And then when it was ended again, crime continued to fall at the same rate. So there was not, so there's no meaningful correlation there. One of the problems actually though, uh, with the, the level of force that we use in this country is that it actually puts cops oftentimes in a more dangerous situation. 
And I'll give two quick examples of this. So a lot of cops are end up, who end up getting shot in the line of duty, ironically, are shot with their own gun. So they face an unarmed suspect, they brandish their weapon, the suspect ends up with the weapon, and they shoot the police officer with their own gun. Now, in a world where the police did not respond to that, uh, to, to this unarmed person with a gun and pointed at them, putting them in a situation where they had to defend their life, right? So in a, in a world where the cop did not brandish their firearm or did not even have a firearm, it's likely that that cop would still be alive. Um, so sometimes when police escalate uh, use of force in this way, it puts their own life in danger. And similarly, if you're a criminal in America and you know that if, and you, and you plan on committing a crime and you know that, you know, if the cops get called, they're going to be rolling up on you with heavy weapons, then that creates an incentive where you have to arm yourself and be prepared to use deadly force just to commit this crime because you know that if you don't, your own life is in danger. In a, in a world where if you commit a crime, if, say if you're trying to rob someplace and you and the police are going to roll up on you with whistles and, 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 uh, and batons, um, then you would be less likely to feel the need to arm yourself as heavily or to resort to force in the same way because your own life would be less jeopardized. So there's this sort of um, vicious circle that can happen where uh, the police being armed encourages the criminals to be armed more heavily, which encourages the cops to be armed more heavily and increase, and, and all sides then sort of are constantly escalating um, both their propensity to use force and the amount of uh, sort of arms that they have. Um, so oftentimes, uh, these situ like the the level of force that cops deployed and the level of um, armaments that they bring into routine encounters with the public raise the level of danger faced by officers and the public rather than lowering that level of danger. Musa, that was an excellent answer to the question from Hal. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This was absolutely fantastic writing, and people can find your writing at The Baffler and elsewhere. But just go to Musa's website, musaelgarby.com. Thanks so much for being on our show. Uh, thank you again for having Live from Light Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is Hell. It's time for Rotten History. In Rotten History, June 22nd, 1633, 387 years ago today, Monday, the Roman Catholic Inquisition found the scientist Galileo Galilei guilty of heresy for arguing that Aristotle's view of the universe was wrong and that instead of remaining motionless at the center of the universe, the Earth actually revolved around the sun. Of course, we now know it is ridiculous to think the sun revolves around the Earth, or I should say three out of four of us do here in the U.S. as, yes, to this day, one in four who were surveyed in the U.S. still believe the sun revolves around the Earth. And if you think there's any possible way you're going to convince that 25% not to vote for Donald Trump, you are freaking delusional. Galileo had been the first to observe the sky through the newly invented telescope, which was fake news at the time to the Roman Catholic Church, and his book Dialogue on the Great World Systems, published the previous year and not written by Emmanuel Wallerstein, was written in the style of the Greek philosopher Plato as a rigorous dialogue between a proponent of the old Earth-centered universe favored by Catholic doctrine and an adherent of the new Copernican system, which put the sun at the center. By leaving the scientific debate unresolved at the end of the book, Galileo had hoped to avoid getting in trouble with the church, but if you think the 17th century Roman Catholic Church would persecute someone simply for not making any conclusions, then you don't know the 17th century Roman Catholic Church very well now, do you? The Inquisition found the evidence-based argument for the new sun-centered theory so persuasive that it made Galileo's true sympathies pain painfully clear 
Also made the truth painfully clear, but whatevs. Galileo was arrested, imprisoned, and ordered to kneel before the Inquisition and renounce his views, not wanting to be burned alive at the stake. Galileo reluctantly complied. A short time later, he was allowed to return to his home near Florence, where he spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Failing eyesight soon ended his astrono astronomical work, and he died a broken man and a punchline to a Twilight Zone episode. Sure, but even though he was forced to renounce his ideas, those ideas went on to survive and thrive and become conventional wisdom and common knowledge today, except among Trump supporters. Who knows what they believe anymore? Galileo would later go on to fame as the star of a Bertolt Brecht play titled The Life of Galileo. In Rotten History, June 27th, June 26, 1243, 777 years ago this Friday, massive army led by the Mongolian general Baju, Baju Noyan attacked defenders of the Sultanate of Rum at a narrow passage called Koze Dag in what is now northeastern Turkey. The name Rum, Turkish for Rome, referred to the area's distant Roman imperial past. For some years, the Sultanate ruled by Seljuk dynasty, had managed to maintain a fairly stable arrangement with the Mongolian general Chormagan, paying tribute money to the vast Mongol empire on a regular basis. But after Chumagan's death, his successor, Baiju Noyan, had arrived to enforce a much harder rule upon the Turks. The battle at Koze Dag came after nearly a year of attacks and harassments. The Turkish sultan, Kai Khosru II, knew his forces outnumbered the Mongol army, so he sent some 20,000 of them to carry out a preemptive attack against the imminent threat. And I still have not had a chance to make some witty interjection in this rotten history. But Baiju Noyan outsmarted K. Kasru. Baiju Noyan ordered his men to first retreat and then encircle the Turkish soldiers in a pincer movement. Ah, the pincer movement. Seriously, that's all I got. Seeing this happen, the Turkish general... Kai Kasru cut and ran, along with most of the rest of his army. Some 3,000 Turkish troops were killed in the battle, along with a roughly equal number of Mongols. The Turkish Sultanate soon came to an end, and the area fell entirely under the dominion of the Mongol Empire. So good on you, Baiju Noyan, I guess. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show? Uh, tomorrow we're talking with Aya Gruber about her book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell. And in case you want to miss the first eight minutes of tomorrow's show, I'll be talking sports, but not in a good way. So don't worry about it. It's not a pro sports segment. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank USA, Alex, Ronaldo, Theron, Richard, everybody for all the work that they do on the show. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.